This is Dr. Bob Patton. Welcome to Making Much of His Mission. His mission, of course, is to see many come to Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we can't be with Jesus Christ. The Bible says further, The wages of sin is death. We are separated from Him and ultimately will go to hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us this as a gift. We can't earn it, but we can receive it. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God. So as we receive Jesus Christ, he comes into our life, gives us his life, which is eternal life, and allows us to spend eternity with him. That is ultimately his mission. Let us all yield totally to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him as our personal Savior. And now, the message for today. This is Dr. Bob Patton with a final exam review for MI1 101 for the fall semester of 2015. The order is going to be a bit disjointed as I had mentioned in class, but we will go over the uh, information that you need for your final exam, and I trust that it will be a help to you. When you're finished uh, listening, if you would want to uh, like or comment, uh, that would be uh, just fine. And you will find on the website three different ways to access information, either through uh, Moodle or through my website or actually on Facebook as well. I'm going to start by talking about the Hudson Taylor film that you only saw parts of because of technical problems. <clears throat> Remember that Hudson Taylor uh, came unmarried to the country of China. He had had a relationship with a young lady, I believe her name was uh, Elizabeth Sisson at the time, but uh, she was more interested in having a nice things in a nice place than she was <clears throat> in serving the Lord and so that relationship fortunately disappeared. <clears throat> uh, his wife that you saw in the film was his first wife whose name was Maria Dyer. You will remember that Maria <clears throat> was born in China. Her parents uh, apparently both died and that a certain missionary woman was her <clears throat> guardian to look over her during that period of time. The uh, Hudson Taylor himself, as he came in, became quite discouraged at the uh, lack of interest of trying to reach the uh, Chinese community. Everybody seemed to be uh, tied together at, right on the site of the ocean where all the missionaries gathered. And so he decided that he would take some trips into the interior. He noticed that people looked at him as a strange being with his Western clothes, and so he actually adopted Western, uh, rather Chinese dress, even to the extent of finding a queue, that's uh, the long thing in the back of the head of the Chinese, uh, and adopting Chinese clothes. He did not develop uh, normal clothes, but he wore the clothes of a Chinese scholar. Once he did that, he found that he could move very comfortably within the framework of the Chinese. The Chinese immediately identified much more with him than with his strange from their point of view, Western clothes. 
uh, they appreciated it. Uh, and the missionaries, however, were horrified. They thought this was just terrible, and uh, they uh, really tur were turned off by him. And they seemed to be much more interested in just focusing on their little area uh, along the coast than reaching the Chinese. However, there was one man who really appreciated it. This man is, was William Burns. He was a famous evangelist, if I'm not mistaken, both in England and in uh, Canada, who surrendered to be a missionary and was a very effective missionary in China after he had been a, an effective evangelist uh, in the West. One of the things that helped uh, William, uh, that helped Hudson Taylor also uh, in his working, uh, both with and without uh, William Burns, uh, more without really, was that he was also trained as a physician. His original training was basically a sort of pr apprenticeship and it really wasn't too adequate. He helped another doctor who ran a hospital in Ningpo, but when that doctor lost his wife uh, and left the field, he was really overwhelmed by the work there. Uh, took a furlough uh, because of poor health, and at furlough time, he got actually quite adequate training in surgery and other things in, uh, as a doctor, and then came back and was able to function much more effectively in the medical field. However, he felt, uh, even after uh, his marriage to Marie, uh, that something was missing in his life. And we find this outlined, among other things, in a book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And what he really found was that he had been trying to live on faith, which he did, but was really basically trying to pump up his own faith and live successfully that way. And he found, especially with uh, conversations with a f and writing of, of a good friend of his, that what he really needed to do was focus not on his faith, but on the faithfulness of the true faithfulness, faithful one, God our Father, and to trust totally in him. And when he did, his effectiveness was dramatically changed. Eventually, uh, after he had learned that secret and learned to trust totally in the Lord, we see him opening China in the mission, uh, which peaked out at actually 1,300 some missionaries a number of years later, and spread the gospel, perhaps the most effective missionary organization, as well as the first faith information, uh, mission organization uh, in China. What he needed to uh, realize also uh, was some of the principles that Jesus himself used. Jesus himself uh, worked on a discipleship program which uh, was not a Bible Institute. It was uh, basically getting in them together with him and training them day by day in the ministry. And of course, uh, Hudson Taylor learned that Jesus lives in us and that he will train us as we walk with him and then he can use us to train others. And we need to realize that true Christianity is not simply a group of facts that we accept in our head. It is not that we go to church, we say our prayers, we read our Bible, and so forth. It is really a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do not have Lord Jesus Christ in our life, we are not really Christians. It's a very important thing to remember. We need to also remember that uh, 
that is available to everybody because Christ died not as the current teaching of his time was, just for the elect. That was very convenient for the hyper-Calvinistic approach that some, even Baptists, were using uh, back at the time of William Carey and others, but that he died for the interior world, the entire world, and that we all should have a part in, in uh, world evangelism, that every Christian should have his piece of the action, so to speak, whether it's to go or to send and to pray. In view of that, there are some things that we can do to help carry on the field of missions and particularly uh, to work in the children in the states and other, and the other locations to interest them in missions. One of the things, of course, is to pray for missionaries in their home. And uh, also another thing is possible to do is to take a short mission trip as a family. And I've known a number of people who've done that, some especially uh, shorter distance places like Canada or um, the or Mexico, but you don't even have to go so far. There are lots of mission organizations uh, right here in the United States. Then, of course, there's the huge number of foreign students that are in the um, through the universities in the United States at the present time, and you can invite them uh, into your home, develop friendships, begin to learn about those particular locations. Think of what I'm thinking of one uh, family that um, befriended one of the students that we had in our own school and um, had him come to his home and the family has been deeply involved in that and apparently he will go on a mission trip to the location with that student. Also, Another thing that we can do is to have the student or the children participate in Faith Promise Missions. I was a little disappointed in the churches where I uh, was in uh, before I went overseas that they did not have Faith Promise Missions, but we always involved our children uh, in uh, giving, and uh, one of the things that they can do is get involved in missions giving as well. And if it's faith promise or some other method, but the children can actually participate in giving to uh, missions. And I, we encouraged our children to do that. They were very faithful, not only in tithing, but more than tithing and getting involved in that. And it's not surprising that two out of our four children ended up being missionaries on the field. It's very important that the child come to the point of being willing to be involved in the Lord's work, which children can do while they are uh, in church. For instance, our children are very active in the bus ministry for the eight years that we were involved in that. And also, uh, they can be uh, totally surrendered to the Lord's will. And what we tried to emphasize with our own family was you need to be totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Let him show you what he wants you to do. But if the parent is not uh, willing to be commi committed to the Lord's will, it's pretty hard to get your kids to commit themselves and insist on them committing if you are not committed. And so the thing we need to do is we as parents need to commit ourselves totally to the Lord and to place our children in the Lord's hands for him to do with them what he wants and to teach them to trust the Lord realizing that although 
hard work is always involved in Christian service, the ultimate focus should be on God's glory. It is true that sometimes uh, true believers will suffer persecution. My wife's parents, a missionary doctor and nurse in China, uh, were chased out of uh, China by the advancing Japanese troops during World War II. My parents were in language school, learning Chinese, were moved to the Philippine Islands, we were placed in a prisoner of war camp for three years. So you may suffer persecution, but you are never abandoned by the Lord. And that is so very important. Remember that many people probably thought for my, with my own parents, here they are, a young couple overseas, thrust into prisoner of war camp, they'll probably have a short life, whatever, and yet uh, the Lord allowed them to live to be 94 and 93. And God uses these trials. He uses trials to draw us to himself. He may do that for the student as he's working his way through uh, college, for example, showing himself through uh, testing of uh, academics, finances, particularly finances perhaps, and perhaps health or other trials, drawing him, drawing us to him. And uh, because he is a God of love, he does want to draw us to himself. However, some people have the idea that because God is a God of love, he will never allow anyone to go to hell. Well, he never sends anybody to hell, but people do go to hell, and in fact, if they didn't, there would be relatively little incentive for us to be having to go on the mission field. This is, the, to me, my way of thinking, the greatest incentive of all. Some people have the idea, well, if you're sincere, uh, if you're sincere enough, you're going to surely end up going to heaven. Well, if that were true, then a sincere Muslim uh, would be guaranteed heaven, even if he was sincerely in ISIS or Boko Haram or some of these other terrorist organizations. Well, he's surreal. He's very sincere, and he is, uh, in the sense that he's willing to even die. But uh, that is certainly no guarantee of heaven. The guarantee of heaven is Jesus Christ living in us. This is true for the uh, Christians the world around. And interestingly now, the number of Christians, because of missions, has shifted. Fifty years ago, most of the uh, majority of the Christians would be in the northern equator in uh, North America and in Europe. That is no longer true. It appears now that there's more people down south of the equator than north of the equator. And in fact, the fastest growth group growing of Christians is uh, in the so-called developing world and in fact even the fastest growing group of missionaries is also in the developing world and we praise the Lord for that. What is really sad to me is that most American missionaries are currently going to places where they have missionaries have already reached a place and have gone to the gospel. They're reinforcing what we already have, but personally I think we need to have beachheads in areas that have not been reached and to help uh, push there. Will you suffer persecution? Of course. But that's true of anybody. All who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's the promise of God that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy 
back 2,000 years ago in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Now, we need to recognize that when we go overseas, we don't go empty-handed. Not only do we bring the gospel with us, if we're true believers, but the missionary also brings his culture with him. And that is inevitable. What we need to do is be aware of the fact and recognize that we are not to Americanize another culture, but we are to bring the gospel to them and allow the Lord to work through their lives. By the way, in the one of the reasons that there was such a long delay in uh, missions was that many people were looking to the government to do this, or they felt, well, when God wants the missionaries to get saved, he'll do it himself. More recently, the problem has been that some people look at the mission agency as the primary person responsible for reaching the lost, but it's not. The responsibility is clearly given to the church, and that's the church's responsibility. Mission agency should simply be a service organization to assist the church in reaching its responsibilities. And the government, as best you could expect, I would say, is a stable uh, situation in which it's more easy to do your work. But the government has not got the responsibility of uh, reaching the lost for Jesus Christ. Now, when you go overseas, don't expect uh, a lot of the things that you hear. For example, don't expect the heathen to come flocking to be saved uh, to you, particularly in certain areas, the areas of the Middle East, the area of Asia, where the great religions of Islam, uh, Hinduism, and Buddhism have been present for uh, well over a thousand, maybe two thousand plus years. They say, well, we've got our religion. And so it may be difficult. Also, some people have the false idea that missionaries always live in difficult circumstances uh, out in the bush. I remember my wife telling uh, a friend of hers that she had to buy some uh, bed sheets or bedspreads uh, to take with us when we went overseas. And she said, what? You have beds? She had, I think, pictured that we were swinging in a hammock out in the bush. Now, some people do, but that's by far a, the small percentage of people. Missions does continue, even though colonialism is over, missions is not. And we not only need highly specialized full-time missionaries, but we also need general missionaries who are flexible. And in fact, flexibility is one of the key items for success on the mission field. Where? Everywhere. God seeks worshipers from every nation, every tongue, every people, uh, every people group. Uh, and he wants us to be passionate about reaching those people. But you say, do we have what we need? Yes, God gives us all that we need to live a godly life, and he will provide what we need to succeed in what he calls us to do. We may not be so successful in the eyes of man, but if we do what God calls us to do, then we are successful in the eyes of God, and for that we thank the Lord. We should know also during this time that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, as Paul has outlined. Paul, did he went through trouble. He went through tri- tribulation. He went through 
areas where uh, war or famine was present. He was attacked um, with demonic uh, evil spirits at times, and yet he said, none of these things separate me from the Lord, the, the uh, Lord Jesus Christ. So what we need to do is we need to see what God wants us to do and then make our plans conform to what he has called us to do. We should not just say, hey, uh, God, this is what I think I ought to do, and please bless what I want to do. I may be putting it a little bluntly, but a lot of times that's what we do. But we should say, Lord, here am I. What will you have me do? Send me where you want to go. And if we yield in this way, then he will guide us. But sometimes I think we want to see the future, which God does not promise us to see. If I had known when we were going overseas to Suriname that I would give up medicine and never practice medicine again, which I loved and I was good at, I'm not sure that I would have gone. But God wants us to do what he wants us to do. And if we totally yield to him, he will show us step by step. And in my situation, it was step by step. First giving up my uh, academic career, and then later on backing off from uh, my teaching load, and then finally giving up medicine uh, basically completely. And he will yield us, uh, and he will guide us when we yield our bodies, our minds, our whole selves to him. When we do that, he promises that he will direct us, I will show you the way which you should go, but we're not to be stubborn. So to prepare ourselves for this, we really need to have an open mind, not our own preoccupations. When I went overseas to Suriname, my original idea was to use my medicine to open up areas in the interior, and then through my medical skills, gain confidence of the people, and then start churches. However, I had to have an open mind. That was my idea, but what was his? His was to go to the city. I have to have an open ear to listen to his voice, and a heart that is pure and willing to yield to his desires. Now, that does not mean that you just sit back and say, okay, God, uh, here I am, blank, uh, do your thing. We need to have busy hands doing God's work, and he will guide us and show us as we are busy. And we need to have feet walking by faith. As someone said, you cannot steer a ship when it's tied to the shore. So we need to have those things in order to do the Lord's will. I've seen some very sad things uh, listed for reasons that missionaries don't go to the mission field. Oh, I'm not spiritually prepared. Oh, raising support sounds like a, a difficult thing. I'm not prepared to do that. Oh, I'm not good at language, and I'd have to learn another language. Well, I'm not good at language either, and I had to learn two other languages at age 48. Oh, I'm not willing to make a lifetime commitment. You know, the Lord doesn't really require a lifetime commitment. He requires a lifetime commitment to him. But uh, in our own case, I went to Liberia, West Africa. Uh, I'm quite sure I was in the Lord's will. That's where I ended up getting saved and was there and then came back to the States and then went to Suriname. was there for 26 years. I'm quite confident I was in the Lord's will then. And yet he has led me back to the States with the opportunity to teach. And I believe that I am in the Lord's will here. So different locations, my lifetime commitment is to him, but not to a specific task.
Some people have the wrong idea of going on deputation that you're begging the churches. You really are not. You're giving the churches an opportunity to team with you to reach the world. And the ch churches cannot reach the world without the missionary going or somebody going overseas. And you will have difficulty managing over there without some support from them. Now, you may go over financially, uh, self-supporting. That's quite possible. And in fact, I encourage people to have some sort of saleable skill. But regardless, you need the prayer support of those who are uh, supporting you to get on the field. Now, what holds people back? Well, sometimes they really are not spiritually advanced and sensitive to the Lord's leading, and they need to spend time getting right with God. It's one of the things that we hope happens in a place like Crown College. Sometimes the parents are opposed. Oh, don't go. Who's going to take care of me in my old days? Oh, don't go. How will I see my grandbabies? And that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes people bury themselves in financial debts. I was shocked to find out, this is a number of years ago too, that the average medical student, when they graduated from the medical school where I went, University of Rochester, good school, the average student is $140,000 in debt. Well, that kind of debt, you're not going to pay off very easily on a missionary salary. And so it's important not to have a debt. Praise the Lord, we were able to finish basically debt-free in my medical training, and that was not an obstacle. It used to be that uh, the physical demands were much more. It is becoming much more uh, uh, feasible for people who are not physically strong to manage as a missionary overseas. Uh, there are certain things that uh, general health measures, I think it's good to avoid being massively overweight, for example, and it's important to do everything you can to maintain your health as it should be. Uh, if you're on medicines, taking your medicines, it's important to be careful as to see what kind of uh, resources you have where you're going. But in the majority of cases, it is possible. I remember um, when I had a heart attack back uh, about 10 years ago that they were concerned when I went to uh, Cleveland Clinic. Uh, they asked me, well, do you want to have a bypass or do you want to have uh, stents put in? Well, the idea of having my chest split open was not too attractive to me, uh, and I opted for having uh, four stents put in. But their concern was that if I had stents put in and something happened, what would I do? Well, it turns out that where I was, even though it's in a third world country, uh, they're making the uh, hospital there a model hospital for the Caribbean area, and there were four guys who could put stents in, uh, and it was 10 minutes from my house. So actually, I had as much or better medical care there for that particular problem than I had in the States. So uh, it, things are a lot easier that way than they used to be. And looking at some of the doctrinal things that we need to remember as, as missionaries, we need to remember, first of all, that God wants everybody to save, be saved. He always works through a mediator, the Lord Jesus. It's always through blood. These things are always true. And so you don't make a mistake by presenting salvation to someone. The very first demonstration of the death by, by innocent substitute was right 
in chapter 3 of Genesis. Right after the fall, God confronts Adam and Eve and then clothes them with animal skins. Later on, you see the same thing uh, reflected uh, in uh, the offering of Cain, the offering of Abel, uh, Noah, and many other offerings that were made by the Jews and so forth. But it started right at the beginning with Adam and Eve. And that's important because the sin of Adam and Eve uh, also affected all of us. In fact, as we look at the problem of the spread of sin in the world, for the first 11 chapters of um, the book of Genesis, God deals with mankind as a whole. That would include the fall of man, the great flood, and the dispersion of the Tower of Babel. After that, we find that he begins to focus on a particular group, the Jews, and a particular man, Abraham, later Abraham, uh, although his Abraham's call also included the entire world because in Genesis chapter uh, 12, uh, verse 1 through 3, in his call, it said that he would be a blessing for all nations. And so this, of course, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life through natural religion. There is no eternal life through any of the other great religions uh, apart from Jesus Christ. He is the way, the, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by him. Now, when Abraham was called, the promise, of course, was to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, and the task of Israel was to call all nations, say, come see the glory of God, see what he can do, and come to salvation. This changed radically after the death of Jesus Christ, when the Great Commission turned around and said, we are now to go to all nations and preach the gospel. So the original mission thrust of the Old Testament was Israel calling people to see the God of Israel, Jehovah God. Our thrust is to go out as missionaries, preach the gospel, and bring people to Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, however, this did not limit itself just to Israel. For example, when Elijah... So where did God then send Elijah? He sent him to Sidon and Serapot, the area there, to a heathen lady at that point in time. Not too long after that, we come to the mission of Elisha. And there's a young girl who says that Naaman, the Syrian general, could be healed in Israel. That is a situation where, again, the healing of Naaman was outside the realm of the Jews. Jonah, the greatest evangelist of the Old Testament, not by his will, but by the power of God who sent him there, saw a great revival in the heathen place of Nineveh. So even though the primary thrust is to the Jews, there was cross-cultural evangelism throughout the Old Testament. Jesus himself also, although they called him the king of the Jews, ministered to people outside of his ministry. Uh, there was a uh, widow lady that uh, he, he, well, he mentioned this particular 
uh, widow uh, lady and the and Naaman in his own sermons. And then he talked about the Samaritans and ministered to the Samaritans and ministered to other people in the areas outside of the direct uh, Jewish people. I think of the demon, for example, who uh, had demons cast out, and he was in the area of the Decapolis at that point in time. When Jesus died, he gave the Great Commission, and we find it five times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and also by Luke in the book of Acts. And he commanded us to preach the gospel everywhere. And the focus was not just on having people pray a prayer or to get baptized, but to make true disciples. And that is the focus, especially in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verse 19. So when we are participating in the Great Commission, we identify with the Lord and his mission. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit is he who shall guide us. We need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and empowering the gospel to accomplish his ministry. Should we do it in our own strength, we'll find that we don't succeed. People have the idea that many ways go to heaven, and again, we have to show them, regardless of what culture there is, one mediator, the Lord Jesus, one way, through him. One of the things that is uh, significant in terms of the uh, work of missions is actually financial. A perfect example of this is the Macedonian churches, uh, such churches as uh, especially Philippi, but also Berea and others, uh, Thessalonica, uh, where the people were actually poor and yet they gave very generously. And we need to realize some basic principles. What you sow, you will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap to the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap to the Spirit. If you sow a lot, you'll, you'll reap a lot. And the other thing is that um, when you sow, you will reap more than you sow. Otherwise, there'd be no sense in sowing if, you're not making, um, if it's not multiplying. And it's also important to realize that you will sow after. I'm sorry, you'll reap after you sow. And God has promised, one of my favorite promises as far as giving is concerned, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, where he promises to provide us enough to do everything we have to do that he indicates. Now, faith promise mission is actually what we do in faith promise missions, is we come to God and say, Lord, what would you have me to give? Sometimes, he will work in such a way that he will ask you to give more than you can give. You say, well, what do you do? If he has directed that, he will then show you and how you can actually meet those requirements. Oswald J. Smith started this type of program many years ago at the People's Church. And when he first started, he found that he uh, was indicated by the Lord to give him a uh, a certain amount, and he was shocked. He said, there's no way I can give that. But God didn't want to see him give something that was, was what he could give, but to give above what he could give. So faith promise giving is really asking God, how much should I give, 
And Lord, I'm going to trust you after I've put this down to enable me to be able to give what you've told me to give. Strangely, but not strangely, when you have faith promise missions and they're really working the way that they should, the offerings actually usually increase. We had a situation which we would have in the church where I would ask people to give to a certain person or a certain situation from time to time, but it really wasn't faith promise missions. And what I saw in those situations was that the people would give and the money they put into the special offering really was simply replacing what they would have put in the regular offering. That is not faith promise. Faith promise is giving what the Lord tells you, whether you've got it or not. But what happens is when true faith promise is given, that the person realizes, oh, I can trust the Lord for that. And they are become more generous in the amount of money that they give to the Lord's work uh, locally, as well as overseas. And so generally, the offerings increase rather than decrease. Now, is it always uh, money? No. Sometimes people will give you their talents, their time. Uh, they may give property. They may give material goods. There are all sorts of ways that we can give to the Lord. I'd like to spend a few minutes now talking about uh, the greatest of all missionaries in the Bible, and perhaps the greatest of all missionaries, period, and that is my hero, the Apostle Paul. We know that the Apostle Paul was uh, raised in a Jewish home, was uh, educated in New Greek, New Greek philosophy and so forth, uh, while he was in Tarsus, where his folks were. But then he went to Jerusalem, was trained by Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the time of Judaism, and then started persecuting the church. And he was not satisfied with locally persecuting them. But after the death of Stephen, which he totally agreed with, uh, the church was scattered. And so he started running behind them. And remember that he had papers to be able to extradite Jews uh, and bring them back for trial from Damascus when he met the Lord in a blinding vision there. And the Lord called him and said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, and who thou persecutest. And he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then he goes into Jerusalem. Now, prior to this time, he was not the individual who was given the keys of the kingdom. They went to Peter. Now, that is not to say that Peter is the first pope. But he was given the keys to the kingdom in the sense of opening the door to three different groups. Number one, the Jews. That occurred on Pentecost. Number two, the Samaritans. He and John went to see what was going on, and he prayed. Uh, and uh, the door opened to the Samaritans. Number three, the Gentiles, told in the story of Cornelius in Acts 2, Acts 8, and then Acts 10. So Peter opened the door, but uh, you can say that Paul walked through, pushed the door open, and walked all over the world. Now at Pentecost, one of the things that I've seen is that people uh, have been so um, confused by modern Pentecostalism that they think that the people who spoke in languages spoke in unknown languages. And I have actually read to them the section in Acts chapter 2, 
verse 6 through 11, where it says in three times that they heard things in their own language, and the third time it equaled, it actually special, uh, specifies rather some 15, 16 different languages they heard. They were known languages, not unknown. And yet I've had people tell me they were unknown languages because they were so caught up in Pentecostalism, even after I read the thing to them. I was really rather shocked. Peter and John, of course, were also uh, great evangelists, although they did not go beyond. They focused on the Jews for most, for initially. It was only much later, after actually that Paul had been opening uh, the door outside of Antioch and other places that Peter went there. But when they first were confronted by the Sanhedrin, they said something very important. Uh, now, Sanhedrin says, we're in charge of the way that the messages of true God should be, and we command you not to speak any more in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter and John answered, you have to decide whether it's better for us to obey God or to obey man. And in fact, we are going to obey God rather than man. And they got incensed. And later on, a second time, they beat them up. But Peter and John did exactly that. There were several attacks on the church during this period of time. Some of the attacks were outside as the Sanhedrin uh, persecuting uh, Peter and uh, John and beating them up. But inside the church, there were also problems. One of the biggest problems was lying. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to have a big name, and so they lied about some stuff that they had sold, implying that they had given that it was everything they had gotten from selling a particular piece of property. And uh, when they were confronted by Peter, uh, he told Ananias, "You have not lied." to man, you have lied to God. How have you lied to the Holy Spirit? In its essence, this is a proof, one of several, that Peter himself was claiming the Holy Spirit is God. Another attack that was from the outside was that of the death of Stephen as a martyr. Uh, but there were otherwise attacks on the inside as well, including this, this uh, problem with the difficulty of distributing food between the Greek-speaking uh, Jewish widows and the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows, and they solved that problem with the first deacons, seven of them, one of whom was Stephen, and he was the most prominent and even saw miracles done, and was tragically killed, at least tragedy from a human point of view, stoned to death, and you would have thought that that was a huge tragedy holding back the spread of Christianity. But in fact, God used that to allow the church to spread further uh, because with the persecution, many of the believers fled. But when they fled, they took their witness with them. They did not keep their mouths shut and they began to spread the word. And so the word began to spread outside of Jerusalem where it had been pretty much tied up for a number of years. It was because they spread that Paul uh, chased after them, met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, <coughs> pardon, and interestingly was 
not only converted, but surrendered to Lord at one time. Now that's unusual. Not everybody does that, but it's certainly the ideal situation. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, who thou persecutest. Lord, what will you have me to do? And so first he recognized Jesus as Lord in heaven, and secondly, immediately surrendered and said, my life is yours. Absolutely incredible. Peter, on the other hand, had to be encouraged to send, spread the word outside to the Gentiles, especially going to pure Gentiles, such as uh, Cornelius. And God had to send him a vision with a variety of unclean animals and said, rise and kill, Peter. And he said, no, Lord, I never had anything unclean come across my mouth. And he said, what I have cleansed, you must not call unclean. Saw the vision three times. Directly after that, three men showed up and told him about Cornelius. And the Holy Spirit says, go with these men. Later on, uh, Peter is imprisoned for another time. We don't know exactly how many times Peter was imprisoned, but we do know that he was thrown in prison at least twice when angels came. The first time was before the, the Sanhedrin, the second time that he appeared before them, when they locked up the gates uh, and they locked him up and they found that an angel had come and told both Peter and John, who were in prison, go and preach the word to these people. When they went in the morning, they found the the uh, the jail was empty of the two men, and they were actually in the temple preaching. Second time was a, a bit more dangerous in many ways, and that is that Herod the king had grasped uh, and killed James by the sword, grabbed Peter, and was planning after Easter to kill him as well. But the thing that's striking is that Jesus had told Peter, after he had uh, risen from the dead, and met them uh, at the side of the Galilee, he had talked about, um, it reinstated Peter, feed my sheep, and then he had said something interesting. And uh, he had said basically that Peter, when he was old, someone would, would carry him where he did not want to go. And Peter recognized that that meant, oh, I'm going to be old before I die. The Lord said that. And so he was young still. So the night before execution, he was asleep. The angel actually had to wake him up before he could get out of prison. Knocked him awake and then out they went. Uh, after that occurred, we find that the first true church where Jews and Gentiles began to mix was not the church in Jerusalem. That was pretty much a Jewish church, but it was actually in Antioch, uh, and they sent Barnabas there to check it out. And Barnabas went there and um, found things going great, stayed there, realized he needed more help, and then sent for, uh, and actually went and found Paul, who had been uh, thrust out of Jerusalem uh, several years earlier, and uh, found him in Tarsus and brought him back, and they started teaching together. At the first missionary call, they teamed up together, and there was a young man who provided some uh, manpower, I guess you'd say, to help them and to get trained by the name of John Mark. Unfortunately, John Mark bailed out halfway through their first missionary trip 
once they hit the Asia Minor mainland, he bailed out and went to Jerusalem. After that time, there was a big hullabaloo over the question as to whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. And there were Gent Jews going around saying, well, it's great that you've prayed to receive Christ, but you need to be circumcised to be saved and you need to hold the Jewish law. They finally had a big council meeting at Jerusalem. Uh, Paul and Barnabas went down there, uh, actually took Titus with them, and uh, it was decided that they do not need to be circumcised. There are certain things they asked them to do. They asked them not to eat things strangled or blood, uh, and they told them to stay away from fornication and idolatry, but that they did not need to be circumcised and they did not need to hold the whole Jewish law. During the trip prior to that, a strange thing happened uh, to Paul. He went to Antioch, had success, was kicked out. Uh, went to Iconium, had success, was kicked out. Went to Lystra, and people there, after he healed a man, uh, thought that he and Barnabas were two gods, and they tried to worship him. And they came so far as to take an animal out to sacrifice to them, and Paul and Barnabas stopped them, tearing their clothes open. But just at that time, Jews who had been uh, very angry at them from Antioch and Iconium uh, walked all the way there and convinced the people to stone them. And they stoned Paul. Whether he was dead and rose from the dead or he was knocked out and recovered consciousness is not clear from the text. But at any rate, he recovered, went back into town, left, went to Derby, turned around, and walked right back into town a third time. Paul had a number of other things happen on his second missionary trip. started off uh, uh, pretty exciting as he uh, went to Philippi, freed a girl of an evil spirit, and they were falsely accused and thrown into prison. At midnight, he did not, God did not send an angel like he sent Peter. He sent an earthquake. And the earthquake shook the whole house. All their bonds were broken. The jailer dashed in and uh, would have killed himself, but Paul stopped him uh, from uh, committing suicide, said, we're all here, and the fellow ended up getting saved, and we believe may very well have been the first pastor at the Church of Philippi, although that's not absolutely clear. Evil spirits recognized the power of Paul in the second missionary journey, also in the third missionary journey. And uh, this occurred also in uh, the places he spent the longest, including particularly Ephesus, which is where he spent the longest, three years uh, during this time. Evil spirits uh, were that they recognized Paul was clear, uh, not only from driving the demon out of um, the young woman in Philippi, but also the seven sons of Sceva uh, in Ephesus tried to throw out uh, an evil spirit from a man, and they said, we adjure you by uh, by Jesus, pardon, by Jesus who God, uh, who Paul preaches, rather. And they said, well, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? And uh, the man with the demonic spirit beat the seven men up. So evil spirits recognized who Paul was, and I like to think of the term known in hell. Uh, that is, that the evil spirits themselves recognize the power. Now, the power is not of Paul. 
but the power is of the Lord Jesus, who is freely moving and working through Paul. We know as Paul went on uh, toward the end of the book of Acts, a whole chapter uh, 27, uh, beginning into and moving into chapter 28, is about a terrible shipwreck that occurred. Paul had warned them not to go uh, on on the ship uh, beyond a certain place, but they did. They were caught in a terrible, terrible storm and thrust 14 days later on the island of Malta. Fortunately, uh, the uh, Lord worked in such a way that the ship actually got stuck on a sandbar going to shore and everybody was able to escape. And the, an angel of the Lord had talked to Paul, said, he's giving you everybody here. Nobody's going to die. And indeed, 276 men were on ship and 276 men were safely saved and went to, uh, ended up going over to uh, the shore of Malta. I'd forgotten to mention who the cause of a big riot in Ephesus. After Paul had uh, had success and people were beginning to see that the god of Diana was not necessary, and they said that they shouldn't be buying idols, the work of the smiths, the silversmiths uh, dropped way off, and they were not making money anymore because people were saying, we don't need to buy these little models of the temple of Diana made out of silver anymore. And so they got mad, and they started a big riot, actually started by the silversmiths, not by the priests, not by the, the Roman government, not by the Jews, but of all things, by silversmiths. Big riot started, but nobody was hurt. One of the things that I think was a success of Paul was that although he was brilliant, he had a tremendous grasp of the Greek language, incredible grasp of the Old Testament. He did not use the Jewish education or his Greek education or his pure intellectual power or his knowledge of the cultures of the time. But he said, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And he preached the cross of Christ. That was the power they had. Now we'll talk a little bit about a number of missionaries from the famous uh, Jim Elliot, one of the five guys who died at the hands of the Alka, now called Wyodani Indians in Ecuador, uh, to some of the first people that uh, started uh, in especially the great century and thereafter, great century being the 19th century. There was a very famous congregational minister who was the first missionary sent out from America who is well known. Now there apparently was a young, a, a black man by the name of George Lyle who had already gone to Jamaica. People didn't know much about him and I don't have much information about him, but we come to the first real well-recognized missionary who went to uh, Burma and that was Adoniram Judson. Incredible missionary, suffered greatly, lost uh, 
uh, two of his uh, three wives before he died, and then his third wife died, uh, suffered under uh, terrible conditions uh, in a prison, and yet was able to translate the Bible, was able to see uh, churches started, and thousands saved prior to his death. He was, however, not the father of modern missions. That was uh, available to William Carey. William Carey used uh, what we would consider modern message methods to start indigenous churches. He is best known because he had an incredible talent in languages. Even though he was not really educated, he was basically a, a cobbler, that is a repair man of shoes, didn't even graduate to make shoes themselves, he was an incredible linguist, learned languages quickly, and translated many different languages in India into the native dialects. He was so good in languages, he was eventually made professor of oriental languages. He also was a botanist. He also abolished the horrible uh, practice of sati, which is burning alive widows on top of their husband's funeral pyre. So he was the father of modern missions. The father of faith missions started China Inland Mission, and we've already talked about him a bit, and that is Hudson Taylor, who started China Inland Mission uh, in the uh, 1860s, and that was the first mission that was not a denominational mission, but people raised their support on faith. It ended up being a huge mission for uh, in the early uh, 1900s. One of the people that um, we studied in this course, another famous missionary, is David Brainerd. David Brainerd, as you know, worked with the American Indians, that is, the North American Indians, along the East Coast. Don't confuse him with uh, the Indians in India that speak uh, literally several thousand different, two thousand or more different languages. Brainerd himself was noted primarily for his prayer life. And his, he did more good, I would say, through his prayer life and his journal of his prayer life. He had more of an impact than he did directly in terms of working with the missionaries. Uh, he did see Indians. He did see a revival. He saw quite a number of Indians saved. But the real impact was the impact of his prayer life, and he served as a model later on for Carey, the head of modern missions, father of modern missions, uh, for uh, Henry Martin, and a, um, Jim Elliot himself also. It was uh, rather sad to see that Brainerd was used in such a remarkable way and yet lived only a short period of time. It's pretty clear from reading these descriptions of his illness uh, and what was said about him and what the doctors said about him that he died of tuberculosis at a young age, 29 years of age when he died. Carey himself, who followed later on, uh, as I mentioned, uh, was a 
Cobbler, by trade, became a Baptist preacher, and a good Baptist preacher uh, was originally going to go to set up a mission agency to send someone else. And when nobody else was ready to go, he decided to go. He actually went with a fellow by the name of John Thomas, who was a doctor. And uh, at first, William Carey's wife said, no way. She was pregnant with, uh, I think, their fourth child. And she said, there's no way I'm going with you. And so he was going to take his oldest son uh, and go. Uh, but through a series of uh, events, uh, he was his delay. His uh, time was delayed. His wife delivered. His wife decided that she would go with him, along with his wife's sister. Later on, uh, Carrie was very successful. Had two other men, Ward and Marshman, help him and built a very large uh, translation uh, practice with a lot of translation books, all sorts of materials. And they had a tremendous tragic fire, which destroyed a huge amount of Carey's work. But rather than be daunted and stop, Carey kept on plodding. And although he had lost years of work uh, in translation, including a dictionary, many translations, uh, we would say today thousands and thousands of dollars worth of paper and other things, uh, the vision of the magnitude of his work was caught up in Europe and he started getting support and actually ended up being uh, pushing the work forward. His first wife, although she went overseas, uh, was a constant uh, uh, problem. She did not do well. Uh, she became quite psychotic, uh, tried to kill him, uh, accused him frequently of adultery, and eventually died at a relatively early age. He remarried. The second wife was very helpful, uh, and then uh, he, after her death, uh, several years later, he married a third time. Carey was one of the strongest supporters of church planting. To mention a little bit more about um, Adoniram Judson, this boy, I should say when he was a boy, I understand he learned to read at age three. He was absolutely brilliant. He went to what is now known as uh, Brown University, graduating as valedictorian at age 19. Father was a saved man. He was uh, he had heard the gospel much at home, but apparently had not made a true profession. While in college, he came under the influence of a fellow by the name of James Ames, who was a deist, and rejected Christianity. However, uh, he and uh, apparently Ames were going to go to see the life of uh, New York. He went, he went to New York, uh, lost what little money he had there and started to return home and had to stay overnight at a particular uh, inn. And the guy apologized. He said, there's a young man who's terribly sick and he's dying, but I don't have any other place for you to, to stay. And apparently as he was trying to sleep that night, he heard this voice, lost, 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 recognizing that he was going to hell. A terrible thing. And then after a while, it became very quiet. Well, when he woke the next morning, he went down and he said, the guy said, yes, I'm sorry, that young man died. He said, oh, uh, he said, what was his name? To his shock, the fellow said, Jacob Ames, the same guy who had 
led him away from belief in the Lord. We went back home, uh, went as a special student to Andover, University, uh, Andover Seminary, special because he had not yet saved, was saved shortly thereafter, and then called to uh, go on the mission field. Fell in love with Nancy uh, Ann Hasseltine, a young girl. Uh, they were married, I believe she was 16 at the time, and two weeks after they were married, off they go to uh, India. En route, uh, he studied baptism, and uh, Judson was brilliant. He would translate from uh, from uh, Latin into Greek uh, just for fun. Well, he took a serious study of the baptism and decided that he was wrong. Uh, he was a Congregationalist, and they needed to be baptized by immersion. When they got to India, they stopped at Serampore, where William Ward, uh, one of the missionaries with uh, William Carey, who happened to be the pastor of the church there, baptized he and his wife by immersion. Uh, they resigned from the Congregationalists, had no support, but a Baptist organization was quickly uh, started in the States and provided their continued support at that point in time. They were not able to work in India and so ended up going to Burma. He had a tremendous problem there uh, when the British and the Burmese had a, uh, a battle, or I should say a war, and he was accused, because he was white and spoke English, of being a British spy, was placed in a death prison. His wife was able to uh, keep him alive and also to rescue the translation he had done of the New Testament. Uh, and he was released, served as a translator for the Burmese government translate, uh, negotiating with the British, but by the time he got back, his wife had gotten cholera, and she died, and shortly thereafter, the baby that had been conceived uh, before he was thrown in jail, uh, the baby also died. He became very depressed, uh, contemplated death, but came out of the depression, became much more effective, and about, I believe, somewhat like six years or so after the death of Anne, ended up marrying Sarah Boardman, whose husband had died of tuberculosis uh, while he was ministering to the Karen people uh, in the hills of Burma. Uh, they continued to live uh, together, had eight, uh, uh, had eight children in 10 years, and, and then she became sick and eventually died. He married a third time prior to his own death. One of my great favorites of uh, all the missionaries is Dr. John Clough. Uh, we don't have time to tell you about his story uh, in this particular session, but John Clough was used mightily to uh, revive the mission called the Lone Star Mission, reach the Dalits. One day they, they baptized in a single day 2,222 uh, Dalit uh, believers, and at one time, I understand the Lone Star Mission, which was about to be closed before John Clough got there, ended up being perhaps the largest uh, church uh, in the mission field uh, in the world at that particular time. Two men whose names are intertwined uh, in terms of Africa are uh, Robert Moffat and David Livingston. Uh, Moffat himself was originally turned down by the London Missionary Society. Uh, he had been uh, kind of an overactive young boy, uh, ran away to sea, but he stuck with it, uh, worked as a 
as a, a, a gardener for the director and eventually developed the skills he needed, the training he needed, and was sent overseas. Married uh, Mary Moffat and was a successful missionary for over 50 years in South Africa. He had contact with a young man by the name of David Livingston, who was uh, also raised in the area, if I'm not mistaken, in, um, in Scotland, uh, and contacted Moffat. Uh, he had been trained uh, at not only in the uh, training of a pastor, but also trained as a physician. And he went overseas. He was originally hoping to go to China, but the Opium War at that time prevented him going there, so he ended up going to South, uh, to South Africa. Livingston was uh, had a very difficult marriage in the sense that he had kind of a wanderlust. He was a he was really a tremendous explorer. He had opposed the slave trade and discovered. Victoria Falls. However, uh, his situation with his wife, Mary, named after his mother-in-law, Mary Moffat, uh, was not the best, and she had difficulties uh, with him and ended up for a number of years in England with her children living in borderline poverty. Uh, Livingston turned out to be an incredible explorer, uh, discovered, among other things, the Zambezi River and the famous Victoria Falls. In fact, there are statues commemorating him on both sides of the falls. Uh, he continued to explore. His wife actually died on one of uh, the trips of exploration that he made. Um, and finally, uh, he died while trying to find the source of the Nile River. Uh, his faithful men who's, who worked with him, and by the way, he was a fine Christian man, uh, after his death, took out his heart and buried his heart under a tree in Africa, which was appropriate, that's where his heart was, and then dried his skin out, wrapped it up, and they transported his dead skin, dried out, probably weighed about, I would guess, 60, 70 pounds, something like that, transported 1,500 miles through the jungles, all the way to the West African coast, and then it was shipped up to England, and he was buried with great honors in Westminster Abbey. One of the things that uh, had hindered uh, Livingston's uh, health in, uh, in general during this period of time, but never stopped him from exploring, was an encounter he had with a lion. A lion attacked him, grasped him by the, right, the left shoulder, crushed his shoulder, shook him, like a cat shakes a little mouse, but one of his faithful uh, men who was working with him as a servant was able to shoot and kill the lion, saving David Livingston's life. One of the most famous lady missionaries is a lady by the name of Mary Slessor. Father was an alcoholic. She ended up supporting him worked in, uh, I believe, Belfast, uh, Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. Finally, was able to become a missionary to uh, Nigeria as a single missionary. She was 
anxious to get somewhat into the interior, was able to travel into the interior a bit and became very active in saving children because in that particular portion of Africa, twins were considered bad luck and so twins were normally killed. And so she was able to rescue a number of twins from twin deaths, adopting them and even bringing one of them back, uh, Jamie, to accompany her to England on one of her furloughs. She was so effective in dealing with people uh, that the natives uh, would listen to her and use her. And finally, she was made an official consul from the British government. And if I'm not mistaken, I think she was the only woman uh, consul at that time from the British government. She had opportunity to get married to a young man by the name of Charles Morrison, who was considerably younger than she, but she said, only if I can stay working with my people in this location. His health would not permit that, and so the marriage never went forward. A few things uh, just to wrap up some uh, odds and ends. Uh, to remind us, one of the things that we see uh, in the mission movement was during the 18th century in particular, when the Protestants began to put in missions, they focused on the areas along the seacoast. Well, it's convenient. You could ride by boat and arrive, but left the interior open. Later on, you have people begin to focus on the interior. I'd already mentioned Hudson Taylor, who wanted to go to the interior, adopted Chinese customs to help him do that, and started an, a mission organization, the first faith organization, and it is deliberately called China Inland Mission, focusing on the inland of mission and not just along the coast. We find later on such place, such missions as, for example, Sudan Interior Mission, SIM, Africa Inland Mission, AIM, doing the same thing, trying to get people saying, hey, it's not just the coast, we've got the whole of Africa to take care of. We've got the whole of the interior of China to do. A lot of these were faith missions. Still, even now, we find that in the United States, the majority of missionaries are still going where there's already a mission. I find that rather sad. I can understand, oh, we've got to... But really, the goal of missions should be to have the mission uh, able to support itself and not to be requiring other people to come and provide financial support and missionary support uh, with personnel. They should be able to take over and you should be able to go to somewhere else. Despite this, the gospel has exploded in the last hundred years. And at one time, I understand, I don't know the statistics, but I'd understand that one time actually there were more people who were Muslim than, than they were uh, Christians. Of course, Islam has exploded recently, growing rapidly, but we must say in the great century, that's in the 19th century, 20th century, uh, Christianity became a worldwide religion, not just Europe and North America, but Africa particularly, South America particularly, and also Asia, particularly now in China. Persecution sometimes slows the gospel, but often will spread the gospel. Why? Because people see, hey, it's really worth dying for. 
and it purifies the church and gets rid of the so-called rice Christians, those who are there to get for what they can get out of it. Translations, it's been impressive to me looking to see <coughs> excuse me, how many people have been involved in translations. Uh, not only William Carey and Adoniram Judson, but hundreds of other missionaries. And when you do that, you have the scriptures and you train the people, they have the scriptures to which they can go to continue to grow. Uh, this was first actually started by Adoniram, I'm sorry, by William Carey, and um, was carried on by other people like Adoniram Judson, uh, and with great effect. Well, I'm going to stop at this point uh, and wish you all a very successful exam. We'll pray together, and then uh, we will meet at the appropriate time and the appropriate location. Father, we do pray for each of the students as they complete studying for the exam, that you would bring to their mind those things which are necessary and helpful, that they would uh, have success in the uh, exam. But Father, I pray especially that we will have success as your servants, that our hearts will be wide open, and that Father, whether we go or we send and support with prayer and finances, we will all be involved in worldwide missions. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you. And a final reminder, what we cannot do in our own strength, He can do through us. So as we try to apply what we've learned today, let us yield it to Him and ask Him to live His life through us. And once again, this is Dr. Bob Patton from Making Much of His Missions, wishing you a blessed day. God bless you.